Hello, my Freedom Pack family. Welcome back for today's episode to the show that will teach you actionable ideas, strategies, tactics, and concepts that will take your performance and your business to the next level. We have got an epic start to the week for you all today. Today on the podcast, we are joined by Stephen Kotler. Stephen is one of the world's leading experts into the science of peak performance, as well as an award-winning journalist. Stephen is a multiple times best-selling author. His work, Stealing Fire, was nominated for a Pulitzer Prize, whilst President Bill Clinton said that Stephen's book, Bold, was a visionary roadmap for change. On top of this, Stephen's book, The Rise of Superman, was the first book in history to be on the best-selling list for sports, psychology, science, and business, all simultaneously. Not too bad. Stephen's also just released his latest work, Last Tango in Cyberspace, which I highly recommend you checking out. Stephen has done some fascinating work into the optimal human experience, commonly known as flow. In this pursuit, he's also broken more than 80 bones <laughs> as an amateur extreme athlete, just crazy. And Stephen's work has been translated into more than 40 languages, and he's appeared in more than 100 publications like Forbes, Wired, The Wall Street Journal, just to name a few. So in this conversation, we discuss things like flow, ultimate human performance, box breathing, Stephen's battle with Lyme disease, and how he came within inches of killing himself. We also venture off into things like eco-psychology, and we talk about a load of hugely important concepts that I'm sure you'll be able to take a lot of value from. And as a little side note, Stephen's also the first person that we've interviewed to say that one of our questions was dumb. <laughs> so be sure to listen out for that. Thank you, Stephen. <laughs> so without any further ado, please help me welcome a man to the show that Elon Musk commented that Stephen's work is essential reading for anyone looking for a better tomorrow. Stephen Kotler, welcome to the Freedom Pact. Thanks for having me, gentlemen. So I wanted to start by asking, you know, during the research phase for this, there was one quote which in, in particular stuck with me, and, and that quote was, conduct your own experiment. And my question is, does this quote go far deeper than just the lab? It's funny because I guess a version of that, right? I have a new book out called Last Hang on Cyberspace and, and Rilke's, uh, the poet Rilke is sort of at the center of it a little bit. And his quote, right, live the questions is all his way through that. And in the book, it actually becomes one of the foundational pieces in a, in a religion. Don't ask. Um, but uh, so, yeah, I think I mean, I, I just think it's a it's an approach to kind of living. That's probably common to, you know, anybody who, who's really driven to explore, who's deeply curious, 
et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, definitely. I mean, I definitely think I steer by it a little bit. And I think most of the people that I work with and play with steer by it a little bit. When we researched into your life and, and we've known you for, for a number of years, we both read the, the Rise of Superman, Abundance, you know, way before we ever thought that we'd be speaking to you on Skype. One of the things where you dig deeper um, and it just seems, man, like your life is just, it just seems like it's like a, ho- like a Hollywood movie. I think one thing in particular that I think is just just one of the craziest stories, and we're just wondering if you could just touch on it just a little bit, <laughs> just to introduce you to our audience type thing, is it was, you know, your battle with Lyme disease. And one thing we'd love to talk about is just, I mean, how close to the precipice did you come during that time? So um, I was... Uh... I got Lyme when I was 30 years old and uh, it was really, I got sick. It was sort of a pinnacle of my life. I had spent sort of a decade uh, working my way up onto a staff job at a magazine that had sort of like the best collection of writers in America. It had taken me 10 years and I'd finally gotten this job. I had a dream girlfriend. We were moving uh, from San Francisco to LA together and uh, I got, I got literally got sick on my drive down to LA. Um, that was the first time I remembered feeling something strange. And I was in bed uh, for about three years, uh, lost pretty much everything, went bankrupt, lost that job, lost that girl. And uh, Lyme, if you're not familiar with it, it's often described as the worst flu you've ever had crossed with paranoid schizophrenia. And uh, it's because it gets into your brain. So not only are you massively physically debilitated, I could barely walk across a room. It has huge cognitive impacts. I lost my ability to think. I lost my short-term memory, my long-term memory. I, I, I couldn't read because I couldn't remember what the beginning of a sentence said. By the time I got to the end of it, I lost my ability to spell. I was really sort of clear-headed and lucid a little way in, maybe 20 minutes, a half an hour a day. And I was sick for a really long time. And I don't know, a year in or whatever. Um, yeah, I get, it was like a year and a half in. Um, my stomach lining started bleeding out as a reaction to the medicine. So there was, they literally pulled me off medicine and I was, you know, there was nothing anybody else could do for me. Uh, and nobody knew if I was ever going to get better. And, you know, after a long time, a couple of years of this, I sort of decided I was going to end my life just because I was literally, I was functional maybe 45 minutes a day. And, uh, the rest of it, I was just a waste. And the only thing I was going to be at that point was a burden to my friends and my family. And it, it was, it wasn't fun at all. That's for sure. And, uh, it was really, uh, you, you said, how close did I get? I, you know, I always say it was a question of, of when and not if at that point, but I guess that wasn't actually true now because what happened is a friend of mine showed up at my door and demanded that we go surfing. And I was living in Los Angeles. As I said, but it, and there, so there was surf there, but it was a ridiculous request. I couldn't walk across a room and it had been, God, it had been years since I'd been on a surfboard at that point. Uh, but my friend, she would not leave my apartment. She just kept badgering me and kept badgering me and kept badgering me. And after hours of this, I was like, you know what? The fuck? I could always kill myself tomorrow. Just like anything. I'll, let's go surfing. Anything to get her to, to shut up, basically. And, um, they sort of like, they walked me to the, they had to basically carry me to the car and they drove me to sunset beach, which is kind of the wimpiest beginner wave in the world. And they gave me a board the size of a Cadillac. And they, again, they had to sort of walk me out by the, by the shoulders, by the elbows to the break. 
And I was out there, I don't know, let's say 30 seconds and a wave came and muscle memory took over and I spun my board around and I paddled twice. And I mean, I was massively debilitated, barely hanging onto that surfboard at that moment, paddled twice, popped with my feet. And I just popped up into what I, what I describe as a dimension that I just didn't know existed. Um, it time seemed to slow down massively. I felt like I had panoramic vision, like I could sort of see out of the back of my head. I was surfing incredibly well, but the strangest part about the whole thing is I felt great. I felt amazing. I was pain free. My head was clear. It was astounding. And it was so good. I caught four more waves that day. And, and by the fifth wave, I was done. There was, there was nothing left to Steven and they drove me home and carried me into bed. And I, and I literally people had to bring me food for, I think the next 14 days because I was too weak to get out of my bed and crawl like 50 feet to my kitchen. And on the 15th day, which is the day I could walk again, I sort of caught a ride back to the beach with a neighbor and I did it again. And I had that same crazy, wild, altered state experience and uh, felt great. And maybe I caught six waves that day. Maybe I was probably five waves again. It was five waves for a long time. Um, but anyways, over the course of about six to eight months, when the only thing I was doing differently in my life was surfing, having these really strange altered state experiences that felt, you know, downright mystical to me. Uh, I went from about 10% functional about to, up to about 80% functional. And, uh, you know, this caught my attention for a, a bunch of reasons. One, like I wanted to know what the hell was going on because I'm a, I'm a science guy. Uh, and, I, you know, I was, a, I was a science writer and a science journalist for a, for a lot of years, for a lot of people long before this happened. And I'm rational materialist. And, you know, I, uh, I don't have, you know, mystical experiences. Um, and I certainly don't have the most surfing, right? That was just flaky as hell as far as I could tell. And uh, so I was pretty sure that the reason I was having these experiences was even though I was feeling better, Lyme is only fatal if it gets into your brain. So I was pretty sure I was having these experiences because the disease had gotten into my brain and I was slowly dying. And simultaneously, I, I was I was healthy. I wanted to know what the hell was going on. So I lit out on a, a giant quest, right? It took, I mean, it, I guess I'm still investigating those questions today. But very, very quickly, I learned that this altered state that I had experienced had a name. We call it flow, right? So that's the technical term, a flow state. I very quickly figured out that there were sound sort of medical and psychological reasons for why it had managed to kind of get me from seriously subpar back to normal. And it has to do with a lot of the kind of brain changes that go on when we go into flow and what it does to the immune system, et cetera, et cetera. But it boosts the immune system a lot. And it was really good for Lyme. Uh, and, you know, Herb Benson at Harvard, a color geologist, has done some work on it. So there's good science there. Um, and, but I also quickly discovered that this kind of same state of consciousness that was helped me go from kind of, you know, seriously subpar back to normal was helping normal people go all the way up to Superman. And that, you know, really caught my attention. And, you know, over time, I started to figure out that what everybody else had figured out that flow is, you know, the secret to peak performance. And then I just had to know how it worked because that's how I am. And that's what I've done pretty much every day since. Yeah, I mean, you said there, I mean, obviously, you're, you're widely renowned for, for your work you've done with flow, um, which is commonly defined as, as optimal experience. And, and what you mentioned there about the, the surfing story, it just begs the question, do you attribute flow in any way to saving your life? Yeah, of course I do. I mean, 
for, for two or psychologically, right? I was, I was destroyed. There was nothing left of me. My career was, my career was gone. My, my dream girl was gone. My, I was bankrupt. Um, I was a mess. Um, and you know, I, I had no hope left and, and nothing emotionally to live for. So, you know, it, it, it did that. But so what we know about flow is that as you move into the state, uh, there's a, there's a release of a gaseous signaling molecule in the body known as nitrous oxide. And what it does is it resets the nervous system. It, it, it sort of flushes all the stress hormones out of your system and gets you back to normal. So an autoimmune condition, specifically Lyme is a nervous system gone haywire. And the problem is even after the disease is gone, all that energy has sort of grooved new pathways through your nervous system. And you literally cannot find normal your body can't figure out where normal is it's lost its ability it's lost homeostasis is basically what's happened um and so everything's way out of whack so by kind of resetting the nervous system at zero with an autoimmune condition you're giving the body a little bit of space to heal and as a bonus there are five or six really potent neurochemicals that underpin the state of flow and among many other properties most of them are performance enhancing but they all boost the immune system uh, significantly uh, so that combination is what saved my life and this isn't <clears throat> just just me speaking I <clears throat> I mentioned Herb Benson earlier the cardiologist from Harvard he has written that he thinks this mechanism underpins most of the cases of so-called spontaneous healing that we hear about uh, and can explain. He, we, he thinks it's this neurobiology, and, and certainly um, it shows up, at least anecdotally, everywhere in the literature, people curing themselves using these states of consciousness. So certainly bears you know, further investigation for sure, but that was definitely my experience. don't know why my brain made this pathway, but it made me think of, of Arnold Schwarzenegger, <laughs> and I'm going to go somewhere with this. So, okay. <laughs> uh, so I think it was, it could be in pumping iron, but Arnold Schwarzenegger is talking about the pump and he's like, ah, oh, you know, to me, it's, it's a satisfy is coming, you know, it's like, it's oh, like yeah, having sex that. with a woman and coming <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. like, and then he's like, oh, can you believe how much I'm, you know, I'm in heaven. He's like, I'm get, getting the feeling of coming at the gym when I go home backstage. He's like, I'm coming everywhere in front of 5,000 people. <laughs> <laughs> so is is that what a flow state is like to you? Like when, when you've really got on the science and you talk about these 17 flow triggers, is that what it's like to you on that sort of level? So it's funny uh, how I answer this question. Um the, let me let me let me walk in through kind of a little bit through the science a little bit or, the, or just the kind of the, the facts uh, and then I'll answer your question. So one of the things we know about flow and uh, this is one of the reasons uh, that uh, it's it's a little more complicated to study is flow is a spectrum experience. So it, it works like take any emotion, take take anger, right? You can be a little irked, you can be homicidally murderous, it's the same emotion. Flow is sort of the same way. You can have a state of microflow, right? And microflow is what happens, say, you sit down to write a quickie email and you look up an hour later and you haven't noticed time was passing and you've written an essay and it's really good and maybe you, you kind of lost track of bodily sensation along the way meaning when you when you pop back into your brain you're like oh crap i have to go to the bathroom really bad right like that sort of thing that's micro flow macro flow is a full-blown you know mystical experience um and, and when i say that 
uh, researchers, scientists, William James, who kind of did the early flow work until the 1950s, we thought flow was predominantly a mystical, religious, spiritual experience. It wasn't until Abraham Maslow founded it in a study group filled with atheists in the 50s that anybody went, hey, wait a minute, this isn't this isn't spiritual, this is biological, this is peak performance, it's not something, you know, that's happening uh, in another world, I guess. But uh, my, my point on all that is um, the, what I, in the beginning, you like the pyrotechnics, you know, the really crazy deep flow states where time seems to slow down and self vanishes. And those are astounding and amazing. And I still love those. Um, but it's the micro flow states. It's the ability to drop into micro flow whenever I sit down to work um, and, you know, really get the performance benefits of the state. Um, you know, you know, they're dialed down, not as much fun, but so much more useful to me. That's really interesting. And that's where I, that's, that's the place I spend way more time than, than in kind of the big macroscopic I'm coming flow state. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. We recently had Scott Young on the podcast. Now, Scott is a fascinating guy. He's releasing a book late this year called Ultra Learning. He's pretty well known in the Reddit circles and on social media. He did like a four-year MIT course, and, and he did it in like a year, self-taught. He speaks multiple languages. He really thinks that he has this formula down for learning. And we spoke to him on the, the podcast about flow came up as one of the focusing tools. One thing that Scott talks about was a subject mastery, and it's a dial which he uses. And uh, and he sort of made the it was sort of a contrast between the work which yourself and Mihai Chicks and Mihai talked about with flow in these optimal states. And then he also talked about the work which Anders Ericsson and deliberate perform a deliberate practice, what he talks about. I would I would love to know, Stephen, is is when we're trying to master something, when we're trying to master a craft. And as you just said but in in the last part about these micro flow stages, is is there a case of we need both or is one better than the other? I mean, what's the situation? So a lot of people get confused here and it and they get confused because um, they don't uh, they don't understand. They're looking at things at a psychological level and, and, and not kind of a neurobiological level. And so when you take that down a step, couple things that are worth, uh, worth knowing one flow is a state of mass, a state of peak performance It's a state of massively amplified learning quick shorthand for how learning works in the brain. The more neurochemicals that show up during an experience, the better chance that experience has of going from short-term holding into long-term storage, right? That's a thing neurochemicals do. They tag experiences as important, save for later. So flow is this giant neurochemical dump. You get six of the most potent neurochemicals the brain can produce, and it appears flows the only time you get all of them at once, which means you get massively accelerated learning in experiments conducted by the Department of Defense and, and my friend Chris Burke and her team at Advanced Brain Monitoring. They found snipers in flow, archers in flow, marksmen in flow, learn, for example, target acquisition skills 230% faster than normal. And there's other studies that... that shoot this up to much higher and things like that, depending on the subject. So flow is a state of massively accelerated learning and you don't get to mastery without it. Um, it's not possible. That said, I'm going to skip the deliberate practice 
topic for half a second. I'm just going to tell you to read David Epstein's new book, Range, which is sort of the counter argument. And, I, and, I, and I've been at conferences with Anders Ericsson, and I, and I like him. I think he's brilliant, and we've talked about flow. Um, but I, I think deliberate practice is a very narrow bandwidth of experience. But more to your point, flow is a four-stage cycle. And flow is what happens after we master our skills, after we can automatize them. We still doesn't excuse us from the hard, hard, hard work of learning and skill acquisition. The flow, as I said, is this four-stage cycle. The first stage is known as struggle. It is a loading phase. You are literally loading, overloading the brain with information. And if flow is kind of, if flow feels fantastic, this is the exact opposite. It's, it's horrific. It's frustrating. In fact, frustration is literally built in to the process because you are overloading your working memory with information. So you're literally going to spin yourself out. It, you have to do that sort of to get to the level of mastery needed for flow to kind of internalize it. So we're talking about the same thing. It's just he what he's talking about, the struggle portion of it is the front end of the of a of a larger learning cycle. When the learning clicks in, when you've got it, when you can do stuff with it, when it's really alive, that's when you start snapping into flow. And just out of curiosity, have you ever met uh and Mihai? We've never met. Uh we've we've talked on the phone and emailed back and forth over the years. Um and he's been I have to say he's been incredibly kind to me. Because I'm let's let's not kid ourselves. I'm a freaking interloper, right? I'm not I'm not a PhD neuroscientist. I'm not a PhD psychologist. I started out as a journalist, um, and you know I built a neurobiological research company, and I work with a lot of neuroscientists, and that's that's been a privilege. Um, but I'm an interloper, and he's been great to me over the years. When I think about the work which you do, I think that. The question at the heart of it all is, what does it take to do the impossible? And I feel as if you were a good example for this. If we're just looking at, say, peak performance, people, organizations, could be governments, do you think that the people that do, in fact, do the impossible are those ones that give themselves wholly to the process? Yes, but let's not overstate this. I was like, when people ask this question, I always like to answer by telling a story about my friend Peter Diamandis, who I wrote Abundance and Bold with, and we've got a new book coming out next year. And when I met Peter, Peter uh, was the, if you don't know his work, he's the, among many other things, he was the founder of the X Prize, which was the original private race into space. It was a, it was a $10 million purse for the first team uh, that could build a reusable spaceship, a spaceship that could do what the space shuttle could couldn't do, which is go back into space twice in two weeks. Um, Cause this is what, that was the thing Peter felt was needed to unlock the space frontier. And that's what he wanted to do. That was his mission. He wanted to unlock the space frontier. He wanted all the humanity to be able to go into space, not just NASA and governments. And I wrote the first major article uh, ever anybody wrote on the X prize. Um, and I found it very early and covered it as a journalist. And I, um, for, I, I won't go into the reasons I believe, Peter, that this was actually possible, but everybody else I met thought Peter was freaking nuts. I mean, I talked to NASA. I talked to everybody who could talk to at NASA, and they all thought he was crazy. They were like, if this is going to happen, it's going to take tens of billions of dollars and take tens of billions of engineers because that's what it took us. So how could he be out, you know, how could small teams possibly do what we're doing? And, and I talked to every major aerospace contractor in the world. They said the same thing in far more colorful language. Um, and... Yet eight years later, 
Burtertown won the X Prize with you know thirty million dollars or twenty five million dollars of Paul Allen's money and a team of about thirty engineers. And uh, this space frontier was opened. And, you know, there's a pretty good chance that you and me are going to go and get to go into space in our lifetime. And it's, you know, on a large part because of one guy and, and, and a competition. But the most important thing is I, you know, my point is that I got to watch Peter sort of do the impossible or help, you know, he was part of a process where the impossible was done. And I always say, you know, what does it look like? It looked like Peter got up in the morning had something to eat, made a phone call, sat at his computer, did some work, typed away, made another phone call, went to the gym, went to the bathroom, took a shower, made a phone call, had lunch, had a conversation or two, typed on his computer, etc. every day for eight years. That's what it looks like. My point is what the impossible looks like up close is the same as any peak performer. It looks like you're, you're doing your best. You're working your hardest, but there's nothing, there's nothing really crazy going on under the hood. So I always say that the kind of the things that really matter are the size of the original vision and the amount of flow in the equation. It really, it doesn't take that much more energy, which is your question to be like the best dry cleaner in Cleveland, Ohio, as it does to do something like open the space frontier, the energy requirement, the hours in the amount of blood, sweat, tears, fear, and everything else are going to be roughly the same. The size of the vision and the amount of the flow within the equation tend to be the differentiators. There's a quote that I heard you say before, and I know uh, Joe and I both love this and, and it is never trust the dopamine and, what I got yeah. from this was to never actually get away from the fundamental things that indeed earned that dopamine in the first place. It is truly a, a fascinating concept. And my question would be, what has your research found about the, the link between optimal performance and emotional management? Is it a case of the best oh, show a, yeah, up? Whether yeah, or not? You, yeah you, you bring up something really great. So... If you look at the sort of history of high performance, it modern high performance starts with Nietzsche. He's the first high performance philosopher. He's the first guy post Darwin to be thinking really hard about high performance from an evolutionary biological perspective. And it goes from there. And if you if you if you look at like the the major contributors to the field early on, um, in a sense, we're, you know, Nietzsche into William James into Sigmund Freud into uh, Carl Jung the first kind of four and then Abraham Maslow. Um, and all of them basically said the same thing. Freud said it most colorfully, right? He said, you can't, you can't do anything until you can get free of mommy and culture. Right. And Jung took it a little bit farther and said, you gotta, you gotta break free of mommy and culture, the way to the past and, and, and other people's opinions of you and other people's thinking processes for you. But you also have to confront your shadow side. You gotta, if you're going to go into high performance. And I think that remains foundationally true. In fact, at the flow research collective, uh, one of the things we do is we, obviously we train, you know, people all over the world and businesses and organizations and governments and whatnot in flow, but it's not where we start. There's a, there's a foundational course which, which teaches motivation and grit basically. And what you get out of mastering motivation and grit among other things is emotional control. You have to have it for peak performance. There's no way around it. And there's, 
the for one the roller coaster involved in peak performance the ups and downs because flow is this really big high produced neurochemically but like any high what goes up must come down those neurochemicals have limited shelf life so they're going to fade so you're going to go way up and you're going to come way down and if you don't have the emotional fortitude uh to survive that you're not going to be able to do this work and this is this is not i'm not being uh I'm being literal here, and the reason is, as I said, there's this four-state flow cycle. So you go from struggle into a release phase, into flow itself, and then on the back end, there's a recovery phase. In the recovery phase, on the other side of flow, oftentimes you can get depressed because you've kind of exhausted all of your feel-good neurochemicals. This doesn't often have to happen after like individual flow states, but really high flow environments, say a startup. Startups are really high flow environments. And if you're kind of pushing towards a product launch, that two month window leading up to it can be a massive high flow environment. And on the back end of that, you're going to have a, a deep crash. People are going to crash on the other end of that. And the problem here is if you don't have any emotional control, if you, if you're, I always tell people that when you're in release, when you're in that phase, you can't take your emotions too seriously. I, 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 the way I like to describe it is I like to say the hangover rule applies. Anybody uh, who's ever been hungover more than two or three times knows that you know when you're hungover, your brain is going to tell you all kinds of horrible things. You know, right? I'm hungover. My brain is going to say, Stephen, you are dumb. You're stupid. You're a failure. You're never going to go anywhere, blah, blah, blah. But you know what? I've been hungover a handful of times. So I can say to my brain, I know. I know. I'm just I'm fucking awful. But you could talk to me about that tomorrow. Today, I'm going to watch football. Like that's the hangover rule. I just ignore the negative because I know that I, I, I've dragged myself out of any feel-good neurochemistry. Same thing applies in the recovery phase. If you don't have the emotional control to kind of control your thoughts to tune out the negative, how are you going to recover, right? How are you going to get ready for the serious struggle that we already talked about where frustration is built in to come? You'll never do it. So the path of high performance is literally closed to you. This is super interesting to me. Do you think the one thing we could do to maybe master our emotions a bit better is to say divorce ourselves from our result? Yeah, I so I mean I think there are a lot of things we can do. Positive, you know, the positive psychology basics, a daily gratitude practice which sort of shifts uh the information the brain takes in and you, you end up taking in more positive than or more positive than negative or it not you don't actually end up taking in more positive than negative but you take in less negative than you normally do no, under normal conditions you'll take in nine negative bits of information for every positive bit that gets through because the first stop all that information makes is your danger detector your amygdala so it's the first filter um so the brain is really biased towards negative information and when you do a great daily gratitude practice, you're reminding your brain that there are good things that have already happened in your life. It's not, you're not dreaming into the future. You're literally saying, oh, I'm really grateful that I'm healthy today. And if you're healthy, your brain goes, oh, you are healthy. That's a good thing. Okay, maybe I shouldn't be as afraid. And maybe you'll get in an extra bit or two of positive information. So you need that gratitude practice. You need a little bit of that optimism because it's that extra bits of information that becomes the kernels of intuition and insight and create and everything else we need to thrive in this modern world, right? So you need that. You need a mindfulness practice because that is actually how you gain some space. There's a gap, right? There's a gap between a feeling and emotion. 
between the moment the sensation arises, what we call emotion, and feeling, which is what happens once we've made meaning out of it. And if you can get into that gap, you can widen it, and you have much more choice. You're less reactive, and you're a little more proactive in there. So those spaces are really, uh, those things are really, really critical. But I think your point is well made. I think it's important as well. Um, I think there's just a lot of tools and I don't think they all work for everyone. And I, you know, a, a true story. I was I, like, I don't know what you know about my bio, but I was a fairly wild kid. Um, old punk rocker is all oh, I've really read all am. about this, Steven. Yeah. So I, I was a really <laughs> wild kid. I had a sixth grade teacher who told me I would live to see 30 and, uh, you know, uh, she wasn't wrong at the time. Let's just, let's just point that out. And, uh, um, not surprisingly, especially cause I grew up in the eighties and the eighties was like treatment programs showed up everywhere. And I never really had a drinking or a drug problem along the way, but everybody I knew did. Right. And so everybody I knew at a certain point got sober and I got dragged to an AA meeting and it was an open meeting and I didn't have a drink or a drug problem. I think I like literally I was the guy who kind of talked to the guy stayed sober and sort of talked to the police and kept everybody out of jail. Um, that was sort of my job growing up. Um, and so I really like, I think I'd probably been drunk six times when I was at, going to AA. Um, so it really wasn't my, my thing that said I had no emotional control. I was, and I knew, I knew it was going to kill me. And when I learned at AA, I was like, Oh my God, these people can, can teach me how to control my emotions. And I stayed for three years um, and, you know, just went to AA meetings I don't know, three, four, five times a week because I had to learn emotional control. It was a, this was not an easy lesson for me. I did not come into this world with a lot of it and I had to really, really fight for it. And I, you know, so I, that's what it took for me to do it. When you were talking, it reminded me about Viktor Frankl, Man's Search for Meaning when he talks about how there's stimulus and there's response. And in that gap, that is our freedom. That is our power to choose. Is that the same sort of thing which I'm taking away? Yes. I mean, I, yes. At a, at, I mean, at a simple level, yes. And at, at, a, at, a, at a much more complicated level, this is, in a weird way, sort of all of consciousness. People, people the consciousness is a weird spectrum because the actual spectrum of experience, Freud sort of, mucked things up with the pleasure principle and he said you know that the spectrum is pain to pleasure and we run from pain and we run towards pleasure and the actual spectrum is extreme pain all the way up to group flow and the spectrum is about choice and decision making in extreme pain if you've ever been in incredibly extreme pain you know the only thing you can think about is your pain there's no choice there's zero freedom the next step up biologically is fight or flight Right. In that state, you are given three options, fight, flee or freeze. And some people will tell you that freeze is actually fight and flight at the same time and the brain crossing signals, though nobody's exactly certain at this point. Um, and the other end of the spectrum is flow. And then there's group flow, which is the shared collective version of it. And the reason is on the other end of the spectrum in flow, because it's a state of peak performance, it's choices wide open. Right. You can any direction you choose to move in because you're performing optimally, you're going to do your best and group, which is a group performing together together. Right. They can do more than an individual. So that's the ultimate end of the spectrum. And by the way, it's the experience people prefer the most. They don't prefer pleasure. They will take group flow and they will take being in great pain to get into group flow. Right. Uh, as the experience they prefer most 
uh, on Earth. And the reason is this whole spectrum of choice at every level of the scale, from what Victor was talking about, where it's the gap between uh, action and reaction, or you know, input and output kind of thing, all the way up. This is, I think this is the spectrum of what it really means to be human. One thing that fascinated me was, was I heard that you guys, you've implemented this box breathing uh, that I think, is it the Navy SEALs that they use? So just, so, just out of curiosity, what, what impact does, does that have? Box breathing was a, but was a tool that we used at the Flow Genome Project, and I may end up using it as a Flow Research Collective. Um, it's just a mindfulness tool, and the SEALs use it. A lot of people use it. Um, it's called box breathing because there's four sides to it. So each side forms a box and say, let's say we're doing five second sides. You'll do a five second inhale. Then you'll hold your breath for five seconds. You'll do a five second exhale. And then you'll hold your breath again for five seconds. And then you do it again. Five, you know, and some people will do like five round, three rounds of five, three rounds of six seconds, all the way up to 10 or 12. That's sort of what I like to do uh, when I use it. And the reason it's effective as a mindfulness training tool is one, it focuses attention. It trains focus, right? And in the way of any kind of meditation, mindfulness system trains focus, um, which is extremely useful. And flow is a focusing skill. So mindfulness uh, is is a way, you know, training yourself in mindfulness directly correlates to higher flow in your life. So it's a really, if you want to increase the amount of flow in your life, uh, mindfulness meditation kind of does double duty here. It also makes you less reactive and kind of boosts a bunch of other cognitive skills. But the thing that matters about box breathing we talked earlier about emotional control. The thing is, if you get up to seven seconds side, so if I were to ask you to exhale all your breath and hold your breath for seven seconds, you'll start to have a fight or flight response. Your body starts to panic automatically. It goes, holy crap, there's no air in my lungs. I, I, I need to breathe. And it starts to panic. And box breathing forces you to focus through the panic. You have to take all that rising energy, all that kind of norepinephrine. Norepinephrine is is, is anxiety and excitement, um, and it and it can be focus. It's it's one of our core focusing tools, but it comes up as fear, and you literally have to turn it into focus to be able to do box breathing over time. And so it trains down your level of reactivity. You're much less panicky. And for people who are in uh, fight or flight situations, the Navy SEALs, action adventure sport athletes, uh, soldiers, martial artists, et cetera, et cetera, um, this is really useful, right? I mean, it's useful for anybody who has to deal with a lot of fear, and that should be every all, all of us because we should be going right at our fears um, all the time. But besides the point, um, for people who actually have to do that for a living, it's a really it – does, it does like – I always say with peak performers are too busy to solve – one problem at a time. You got to solve multiple problems at once. Otherwise, it's not effective. And that's what box breathing does. It trains up a bunch of different things at once. And you don't have to do it for super long um, to really get the effects. 12 minutes a day kind of thing is enough to really start seeing the effects after a couple of weeks. These breathing exercises, I spoke to um, an ex uh, special forces soldier earlier who was actually t um, talking to me about a similar type of. I'm not sure he used box breathing as the term, but he described it as the same. And, and he said that they are now implementing that in most militaries around the world, or at least a form of it, just because of that sort of clarity and the benefits of it. So I well, can, you gotta, uh, I mean, we're in the States, I don't know. I, I, I don't know where it's like where you are, but right now I think the stats are two, a year ago, 44% of American companies were rolling out mindfulness training programs. And that probably now it's over. It's gotta be over 50%. 
So this is, you know, this is wide and, 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 and mainstream at this point, as far as I can tell. Exactly. And, and, and if, we, if we move on now in, into your writing, and obviously you've had multiple bestsellers, I think uh, The Rise of Superman even was, was the first book to be featured on the bestselling list for, for sports, business, and psychology, and science simultaneously. And as someone who is fascinated with peak performers, um, me and Joe all, always look into this, and we love to try and deconstruct uh, peak performers. And what we found was through our research that you say that you start writing within four minutes of waking up. Why is this, Stephen? Your brain waves shift and flow. They go from beta, which is where they are right now. It's a fast-moving wave. It's where you are when you're awake and alert, et cetera, et cetera, down to the borderline between alpha, which is daydreaming mode, and theta, which is where you are in REM sleep or the hypnagogic state. It flows right on the borderline between the two. So when you wake up, you're coming out of theta, you're moving into alpha, and then you're going to go into beta, right? So my goal is to get to my desk and be writing before that happens. Because I, I want to go back to that alpha-theta borderline where I, where I just came from. So I don't want to wake up. I don't want to do too much thinking. And I've got a, I've got a writing process where I always I start by editing what I wrote the day before. And that's sort of a low-grade pattern recognition exercise more than anything else. Because I'm often, you know, unless I wrote really crappily the day before, which happens, um, uh, I'm often just tuning this word here, this word there. It's not I'm do- not doing giant overhauls, uh, and it, it's a really sort of gentle ease. And the and the this pattern recognition, one of Flo's triggers is pattern recognition. When you link ideas together, when you notice patterns, you get a little squirt of dopamine, and that drives focus. And you, you repeat that enough times, you can start pushing yourself into flow. And so the combination of of getting to my desk really quickly, right? So my, my brainwaves stay closer to flow and then really quickly starting my writing session in this very specific way that is going to start driving even more neurochemistry um, into my brain. Very, very useful. And that's why I do it because it, it helps me get into flow faster. We are such a huge fan of your writing. And I know that you have got a writing course coming out i think it's in la we've got a huge american audience could you just tell our audience a little bit more about that yeah it's uh, uh it's we've been doing it for a couple of years now just getting amazing astounding results really fun i call it flow for writers it's a two-day boot camp and it's it is intensive we do we sort of break it we break it into four parts uh one part is is actually about the craft of wordsmithing and we, I mean, we surround the craft, you know, everything from how to develop your own style to how to structure an article, a book, a blog, take your pick, you know, all, all the kind of ins and outs all the way down to kind of the, the neuroscience of engagement. When a reader really loves a book, what the hell's going on in their brain? Why are they turning pages one after another? There's, there's science underneath that. And so we break that down. I also, uh, we spend the second half of day one really on the business of writing. And I, you know, bestsellers are not, uh, nobody, very few people get lucky. You don't usually get lucky. Bestsellers are built is what I, is how I always explain it. And, um, and nobody ever will tell you how to do this because, um, there's obviously competition and writers are as competitive as everybody else. And so nobody really talks you through what a book proposal really looks like. What does it take to build a bestseller? What's the team you need? What roles do they need to play? What's it going to take? Um, what does it take to get a six figure book advance? All that kind of 
gritty stuff that nobody really teaches. We, we, I break down. Day two, uh, we do uh, the neuroscience of creativity. So what the hell is going on in your brain when you're writing really, really well? And we cap it off uh, with you know a, a flow specific specific module where it's really directed at writers and so you learn how to turbo boost everything you've learned with flow and flow one of the things that happens in flow massive boost in creativity there have been a lot of different studies worked on at harvard we've done some work there's work done in sydney the numbers sort of differ but we go you see like a 400 to 700 percent boost in creativity and flow it's enormous and you know we've looked at we've actually with our program is with uh with some folks at usc mike gervais and uh, glenn fox in the center for neuroscience and performance and uh we sort of we in, in the work we've been doing with them uh we've broken down creativity into all its subcomponents: problem solving idea generation etc cetera, etc cetera, etc cetera. and uh still see the huge boost in each of these things and, and then we have a big party at the end and uh, and have a lot of fun. And the the crowd is pretty amazing. As a, as a general rule, um, it's just a lot of you know really a players. It's it's kind of it's kind of astounding. It's fairly. It's not all that unusual for the audience to be a lot more famous than the dude on stage. <laughs> You're making us want to buy a plane ticket out, Stephen. <laughs> um, so while whilst we're on the topic of your writing, your yeah. latest book is called the the Last Tango in Cyberspace. I suppose it is a perfect place now for you to say what was the goal with this work? Couple of them, right? But I think the simplest way in, it's a novel, right? And and I you know, I started out as a novelist and it's been 20 years and I and I've returned to the genre. And one of the reasons I returned to the genre is over the past decade I've written four different books, Abundance Bowl, Tomorrowland, and for a large portion Stealing Fire about kind of technological revolutions and what's coming. But every one of those books, because they got to make sense, I just did it linear, that this technology, then this technology, then this technology, this innovation, then this innovation, then this innovation. But like one at a time is not the future, right? The future is all this stuff together. And people kept asking me, Stephen, what do you think the future is going to be like? What it's going to be like three years from now, five years from now, 10 years from now. And I never even tried to answer that question, right? But I really, it stuck with me and I, was, and, I, and I was like, you know what? I want to know what all these things look like together. So I literally put them all together in a world. And so everything in Last Tango in cyberspace, all the technologies um, either is exists somewhere in the world or in a lab somewhere in the world, uh, with the exception of one or two technologies that are made up. Um, though I took existing technology and I just pushed them out probably a little bit farther than my five-year timeline. Um, other than that, everything's real. And, I, you know, I, so I created a world and I told a story in that world and I got to live in that world while I told the story to figure out what the future was going to be like. And, you know, I got to answer everybody else's question. Um, so that was one of the big, big impetuses. And the other big impetus is the book is, you know, it's fundamentally about empathy and it's fundamentally the, the message is, is, is a message of empathy for all. All humans, plants, animals, ecosystems. I, you know, I believe that empathy is our superpower and it's our secret weapon, and it's the only way we get to survive this 21st century. So, both of those things together were the big drivers for me. You've sort of touched on it in this interview. This idea of group flow. I've heard you talk before about how group flow it increases empathy, it releases different neurochemicals. So, why was it that you decided to take this idea that? empathy is this really powerful 
feeling and emotion? And also, why is group empathy such a powerful experience, Stephen? So to answer that question, I got to go back to something I sort of mentioned earlier. We started, it said, it's, you're actually asking an information processing question. Um, and it's interesting. So the brain takes in, and there was all kinds of numbers, but like the, the general thinking is that brain takes in about 400 billion bits of information a second. Huge onslaught of information. Consciousness, right, what we can actually pay attention to, what we know of the world, our reality, is only 2,000 outputs. It's 2,000 bits of information. Or uh, Chick sent me high, who also worked on this question, and he put it differently. And he said, you can only hold on to about 120 bits at any one time, and you're using 60 bits just to listen to me talk. So if you and I start talking at the same time, that's it. We've taken up all of the RAM in the brain. So consciousness, very small output. So what gets through? Well, what gets through is shit we're scared of, right? Because fear is the first filter. And then usually stuff we're goal-directed towards, right? That's, that's usually the stuff that gets through, the stuff that scares us, the stuff that we can fuck, the stuff that we can eat, and, you know, our goals. That's sort of what gets through, and it's a very thin slice of reality, and everything else is kind of filtered out. And this is massively problematic, and where it's really problematic is when it comes to the environmental crisis that we now face. And I know you're going, what the hell is he now talking about? But this is going to take a second, but we'll get there. So we are in the middle of a massive environmental meltdown called climate change, the biodiversity die off on and on and on. And um, the numbers are really critical. So eco psychology, which is the branch of psychology that studies how humans interact with the environment and with our ecology, um, has there's 50 years of data that basically says hey look when you live in boxes when you stare at screens all day right you live in boxes and you stare at boxes the brain because this does this just to process information it filters out shit that's unimportant well if you live indoors and you stare at boxes what's unimportant is the natural world so there's 50 years of psychology that says one of the reasons we are in a giant environmental meltdown at a global level is because people literally cannot perceive the very thing they're trying to save. So at the root of our environmental problem is a neurobiological problem. So the question is, how do you shift perception? And the answer is empathy. And this is true for people. It is true for animals. It is true for plants. And it is true for ecosystems. Empathy is our secret weapon. It literally tells the brain, oh, you are empathizing. You are. You need to feel this thing's feelings. You need to see things from this perspective. So I'm going to give you different information. I'm going to take in extra information. I'm going to extend perception in this way and give you data that you wouldn't normally have access to. And look, this happens. Anybody... You know, I, you know, the generation above me, and I saw this uh, in my own family, and I think I saw this in my, in my family's friends. It was a, you know, it was a fairly racist, homophobic generation coming in, and, and, and it, it isn't now, but they had to learn those lessons along the way, along with a whole lot of other culture, right? Um, I, I, I was the punk rock generation, so we had sort of learned a lot of those lessons already, and we were building on them, but they had to learn a lot of those lessons, and it took empathy and you notice this right people stop being racist and all of a sudden they start noticing things about whole groups of people that they never noticed before 
oh my God, I like their shoes. I like their music. And it's not like the shoes or their music change. It's that you're actually hearing it for the first time or seeing it for the first time. That's literally a shift in perception precipitated by empathy. This is why Rilke said empathy is a superpower. It alters perception. It lets us take in different or more information. And so that's, you know, if you're going to save biodiversity, if you're going to save the planet, one of the things that has to start with is empathy for plants, animals, and ecosystems. So we can actually start perceiving the very thing we're trying to save. When I was actually thinking about this before, one thing I thought about was because as human beings, we are naturally survivalists. So it makes me sort of think that it's difficult for us to imagine the world in, say, 30 to 50 years. Or I mean, I've heard you talk about, you know, the a potential crisis within three decades. Do you think that this ties into your uh, to your eco psychology point of why? Yeah, it's you know it's so it's it's interesting. It's not even my eco psychology point at this point. Like the first time I wrote about this stuff was back in uh, 2012 or 13 or 11 when I wrote published Small Fairy Prayer, maybe 2010, and it was the, my ideas on the environment and, and ecology and things like that were pretty cutting edge countercultural back then. I just read the recent UN report on biodiversity. They're saying it 10 times harsher than I are. I am. But one of the other things they're saying is that if we're going to solve these problems, we absolutely have to have long-term thinking. We need ecologically, we need systems level thinking and long-term thinking. Those are two of the biggest problems we face right now. And I really think, by the way, um, if you're going to thrive from a performance level, from an individual performance level in the 21st century, I really mean this. You absolutely need these skills. You have to be able to think at a systems level and you have to be able to think long term. And you, so you brought up our short term time horizons. It was interesting. We were doing, I was doing research for the new book with Peter and we were talking about that. And obviously it's critical because technology is accelerating exponentially, but our brain thinks linearly, um, which makes it very, very difficult to see in the future. Jane McDonagall has done research that shows that most people have a really hard time imagining past 10 years. And one another organization that I helped co-found uh, known as Equilibrium, where we bring together technologists and business leaders and, 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 and environmentalists and whatever, and we, we come together to try to solve big environmental challenges and, and invent technologies uh, that will get, our, get us out of this stuff. Um, we actually have a, 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 we use a retrocasting way of getting at the future. We ask people to imagine past 10 year time horizons. We have to use a specific kind of structure that was developed by a friend of mine over 20 years to help people do this because we don't naturally do this. But I, what I was going to tell you is I stumbled upon some weird ass research that shows that because when we, you know, obviously this happened because we evolved in local and linear environments and, and because we never really thought long, much farther out than how do I survive the winter? Most of us have a six-year time horizon or six-month time horizon. That's the that's our built-in time horizon, um, and you can't. You know, it's 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 funny. I I always train my team uh, to think to at least think from a business perspective, thinking two to three years down the road at all times, and certainly you know we'll, we'll do meetings where we're looking ten years out, fifteen years out, and things like that as well. Um, just to sort of get at it. But I, we definitely have to stretch out our, our time horizons. And this is what humans are great at. It's so funny that like, it's, you know, I always say one of the things you learn in peak performance that every your your kryptonite is your superpower, right? That's what Jung meant when he talked about going at your shadow side. He didn't mean like what we're seeing today with this kind of victim mentality where everybody wants to wallow in their trauma. 
I always say other people call it trauma. You, trauma, I call it Monday. But, <laughs> but you know, so I, I'm not much. I'm not much for the for, for the for the wallowing in it. Um, but certainly, you need to use it because every one of your 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 traumas become your superpowers, right? Your your kryptonite become your superpowers, and that's always true, and it's true here too. I noticed that eco psychology, empathy. Both of these things were at the heart, and also something which you touched on today. Does flow increase empathy? Yeah, so this is, uh, this is work that kind of sort of emerged out of the footnotes of the Harvard Development Study, um, which is kind of this ongoing 100-year study of adult development. And what they noticed is that um, the more access you have to flow over time, the more you move up the kind of adult development scale. And what you, what you gain as you move up that scale is perspective, the ability to see things from multiple sides, empathy, wisdom, patience, loyalty, those kinds of traits, right? Um, that's what you get as you move up that scale. And um, flow seems to be one of the ways you have to do a lot of emotional work. Your flow doesn't do it automatic. None of this stuff is automatic. Um, but flow widens your perspective out enough. You have uh, what scientists call the watchtower effect because you feel like you pull up above your life and you can see farther into the distance, like you're in a high watchtower. We actually know the part of the brain that does this, um, and it's the part of the brain that goes totally haywire in trauma and PTSD where the exact inverse happens. You can't pull yourself out of the situation. You keep reliving it and reliving it. Flow is the exact opposite. You're way up above it with a lot of perspective, and it allows you to kind of see farther kind of long-term thinking and ecosystem thinking and systems thinking. When we hit a flow state, what is the neurochemical effect? Does it increase our serotonin? Does it, does it, is it anodized? So that's a, so, so I'm not going to, I'm, I'm, I'm going to widen out your question because you're asking, asking, uh, and, and I don't, I don't mean this enough. Yeah, I do. You're asking a dumb question. Here's why. There's <laughs> no, no nice way to say it. It's a dumb question. Here's why. It. There's no problem. So when you talk about what, what's going on in the brain, you always got to talk about four things. Otherwise, you're not really making sense. You've got to talk about uh, neural anatomy and networks. Neural anatomy and networks are where in the brain something is taking place. And we used to think things were localized. This spot did this. This spot did that. But now we know it's not. doesn't really work that way. The brain is actually up bunch of locations, right? And, and most spots do multiple jobs at once, though they tend to overlap. Um, but there are networks. You also need neurochemistry and neuroelectricity, which are the two brain ways the brain talks to itself and communicates, right? Sends messages and signals. And so if you want to talk about that, what happens in flow, you get a shift. All these things shift. Neurochemicals are part of the equation. The really, well, neurochemicals are the, all the performance enhancement and all the feel-good part the really big shift is uh, in the deactivation of large swatches of the prefrontal cortex or kind of the part of your brain that's right behind your forehead. This is the part of your brain that does all your higher cognitive functions, executive functions, sense of morality, sense of willpower, long-term planning, logical decision-making. All that stuff is done there. Very critical. But in flow, the brain performs an efficiency exchange. It needs more energy for focus, so it shuts down non-critical structures. And a large portion of your prefrontal cortex winks out. This is what produces all the weird so-called mystical effects in flow. So why does time pass so strangely in flow? Remember, I said I stood up my surfboard and felt like time, I, like time had slowed down. That happens because time is actually calculated all over your prefrontal cortex. And as parts of it wink out, right? 
you can no longer perform that calculation. And so we take past, present, and future, and they're scrunched down into the one moment known as the, the, the deep now or the eternal present. Take your pick. Um, so this is the same thing happens to our sense of self. Self disappears in flow because self is the calculation performed all over the prefrontal cortex. Um, another really common mystical experience is the feeling of being one with everything. That's another byproduct of this kind of shutdown. It's not actually in the prefrontal cortex then, then it's moving a little deeper into the brain. But these are neural anatomical changes that are producing really powerful, powerful impacts in flow. Um, so yes, flow is this huge rush in neurochemicals. And uh, I will, the one thing I will tell you, because you brought up serotonin, so, when I wrote Rise as Superman, serotonin, there's no really great data on flow. There's a lot of smart thinking speculation. It's the one neurochemical we don't have really great data on yet um, in flow. Not the, I don't think we have really great data on any of the neurochemicals, but we have the least on serotonin. But uh, the thinking at the time of Rise of Superman, and this may still be true, is that serotonin has very little to do with the flow state, but that very deep, peaceful calm you get on the back end that might be serotonin, but there's some new research that seems to say there's some kind of baseline threshold level of serotonin you need in the brain before you can get into flow. But uh, as a general rule, whenever you have large quantities of dopamine in the brain, you don't tend to see serotonin. They tend to cancel each other out a little bit. Stephen Kotler telling me my question was stupid. I mean, <laughs> I may get that on a t-shirt. Yeah, I mean, the other thing, I, I get really, the other thing with the neurochemistry that I want to say is, um, you know, I've talked a lot about these big five, big six neurochemicals, but I really, uh, that show up in flow, but I, I, I guess I, what I haven't said enough, and I, this has come back to me enough, and I've seen enough other people's writings on the subject, um, where they're not reading, like they're, they're taking the main point and they're missing some of the other things I said, which is we don't really know. Like we don't know if all six of these chemicals show up in everyone in every flow state. Is it different from men to women? Is it, there's all kinds of, by the way, there's really strange data coming out of education that says poorer people get into flow faster than wealthier people, that uh, people from ethnic backgrounds get into flow more frequently than white people. I mean, there is real, the men and women are different. There's a lot of unanswered culture, nature, nurture questions about this that we cannot cannot answer yet and there's probably some neurochemistry that's very individual in there so while some of the other stuff we can say absolutely sure but the neurochemistry is sort of an open question at the flow research collective we've teamed up with uh dr andrew newberg who uh sort of founded the field of neurotheology he was at the university of pennsylvania still is a little bit but he runs the jefferson uh murnock uh, center for integrative medicine uh now at jefferson university and uh he sort of did the original brain scan work on meditation and Franciscan nuns and Tibetan Buddhists. He's the guy who figured out why people feel one with everything uh, in mystical experiences. And I actually read his research and called him and said, hey, I've been researching surfers and they're all talking about being one with the wave. And I used to have that experience when I had Lyme disease, I'd become one with the ocean. And I was like, do you think we're looking at the same thing? And that was the foundation. That was the very first conversation uh, that kind of it, you know, Andrew sort of became my first mentor in the, in this, in this field. And, um, he, you know, we figured out very quickly that what I was looking at in action sport athletes was the same thing he was looking at in Tibetan Buddhists and Franciscan nuns. And it was sort of off to the races and here we are 27 years later and he's on my board. <laughs> so where do you think that actually this is a two part question. So where do you think that firstly the research with flow will go and also 
how far will you personally try to take it or do you have aspirations to maybe branch out somewhere else what i'm basically saying is is what's next for steve yeah Cobb? so uh <laughs> Uh, let me just tell you about what we're doing at the Flow Research Collective because uh, it's a very specific. You know, we have uh, we have research partnerships with a lot of people. We have Deloitte, Formula One, USC, UCLA, Imperial College uh, in London, a, a bunch more. Uh, but they're all Andy Newberg, as I mentioned. Uh, but they're all aimed at at, at, at the sort of three three goals. And I, I see them as sequential, um, though I could be wrong in that. Uh, but the first is. Uh, we have, there are 22 known flow triggers. Some of them are extremely well validated. Some are not. And so we want to really validate those triggers. So we know how to drive people into flow for sure. And we're, you know, we have a good understanding of the neurobiology underneath these triggers, but the more work needs to be done. So that's where we are now. And we're working on a lot of stuff there. Simultaneously, we're building a biophysical based flow detector, something that doesn't right now. I want to know you're in flow. I got to give you a psychological profile. I got to ask questions, nine of them um, minimum and uh, good, not great, really well validated. Um, plenty of plenty of people have taken it. We trust it a lot and we use those these scales, but we'd really like to be able to take a, a bunch of physiological metrics and be able to tell, are you in flow? So that's what we're doing. And uh, we're, we're really, it's, we're building a machine learning algorithm. We're building an AI that can tell you if you're in flow. And hopefully it'll, it'll just attach to a bunch of different quantified self sensors that are already in, in the world. Uh, and, and we're doing this and as a collective. So uh, anybody who sort of subscribes to the collective, takes one of our trainings, uh, downloads our app, um, gets to help us run these experiments uh, at scale as we, as we move this forward. And so the biophysical based flow detector is the, is the second step. And the third step is this is a little, uh, this is going to take a little more explaining, but uh, I mentioned earlier that we know that flow produces accelerated learning environments. So we also know that uh, virtual reality video games are good at putting people in the flow. They can get at three or four flows triggers really, really well. And in fact, uh, this is so frequent that that the amount of flow a video game produces is one very common indicator of how well that game will produce, uh, will do in the real world. Um, so it's it's a market indicator and, and all kinds of other stuff. And, and game designers, game design has been built around flow triggers for a while. VR is much better at this, much, much better. It can get at all the flow triggers, not just a handful of them. So we can create in VR very high flow environments. We can also use VR to create virtual schools. Um, and whether it's the education of children or it's uh, retraining as robots and AIs come for our jobs and it's retraining huge swatches of the populace uh, in new skills very, very rapidly, um, we're going to need distributed schools. And with a an AI layer, we know that self-directed, individually customized learning works best, right? If you're steering your own learning experience, you will learn more uh, and, and faster than if you're you know, following a blueprint kind of thing. And so what we can do with, by combining flow science with VR and AI is we can, can create fully distributed, individually customized, accelerated learning environments. And that's what we want to do. So that's where we're going. And, um, and that's, uh, I think that's going to be you know, the next three to five to 10 years of the work I do in flow. I mean, you know, I obviously have lots of other, other interests and I write lots of books about other things. And, you know, my wife and I run a dog sanctuary and I do a lot of animal, animal rights advocacy work and a lot of environmental work. And those things are not going to stop. Um, 
as well. And I, and I you know, I'm going to keep writing novels because they're fun as hell. No, we, and we appreciate it. You guys, I mean, by the way, you, it, that's all I'd start. I started it out as a, as a guy who had a lot of questions. That's all. That's just where I started, right? I was a journalist. I was a guy who had questions. <laughs> as we start to wind this down, now we just we tend to ask three questions to every guest that comes on. Um, and the first one of those questions would be, are there any societal rules or societal norms that you love to break? Oh my, I, the, the, I, I'm sort of wondering which ones I don't love to break. <laughs> <laughs> Thou shalt not murder. I, you know, I, I, I keep that one. <laughs> Yeah, I think, we, of, I think we can all agree. A couple agree. others, like, there's a couple thou shalts that I that I try to keep. Um, yeah, I don't know. you got to understand, I, I live in the mountains in northern New Mexico. I was raised in outlaw culture. I sort of live in the middle of outlaw culture. I don't, um, I you know, I, I when I go into, if you, if you ever see me in the world, you'll always see me in all black. And I always say that, I like, I'm in costume. I wear all black because, one, it hopefully it reminds other people that I'm not a citizen, right? I'm, I'm probably not like exactly like them. And, and, and I want, I sort of want to telegraph that a little bit, but I have to remind myself that I'm in the real world. I, I, we just, I just don't, I have a very strange life. I spend a great deal of time by myself with my dogs, with my wife. I can go, if I'm at home, I can go months without seeing another human being kind of thing. In the winter, I spend a lot of time skiing alone, um, I spend a lot of time in the summer mountain biking alone. I'm not. Um, I I dip into civilization very carefully and sporadically. So I'm not sure. Uh, I I don't know how many of them I break all the time. But yeah, I'm not a, a clean fit into uh, into normal society. I don't think. <laughs> Perfect. And obviously, you are uh, extremely successful writer yourself, and your books have undoubtedly impacted so many lives. But my question to you is: Are there any books that you have read in your life that have impacted you? Oh yeah. Uh, so uh, whenever people ask me this question, I always list three, um, and uh, no special or I don't know which ones I like uh, more. But the first is the User Illusion by Tor Neander. I'm going to slaughter his last name. I can never say it, so I'm not even going to try. The book is The User Illusion. Uh, the subtitle is Cutting Consciousness Down to Size. He did, he's sort of uh, the Norwegian Carl Sagan, and he did a lot of the foundational work. When I was talking earlier about the brain taking in 400 billion bits of information and all that stuff, those are his, calc he worked on that calculation. He does a lot of work on that, but it's one of the best, if you're interested in, in kind of the brain and performance and consciousness hacking and any of that stuff, uh, how consciousness works, uh, you really have to read that book. If you read that book followed by a book called Strangers to Ourselves, your good opinion of yourself is going to shrink massively. It's just astounding how little control we have over our own brains and our own realities and our perceptions. Um, so I love those two books. Uh, strangers to ourselves and the user illusion, but the user illusion is the one I always tell people to read. I also think there's a book by a guy named David Quammen, who was sort of one of my early heroes. He wrote a, a column for outside magazine on biology called natural acts forever. And he's gone on to write a ton of great, great, great books, but he wrote a book called the song of the dodo. And it, 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 it's sort of a breakdown of a field that you've never heard of, which is Island biogeography or biogeography, but uh, if you want to understand 
any of the environmental challenges the world is facing today at a really deep level. Like earlier I said, uh, if, you, if you're, if you're going to thrive in the century, you really need to be able to think at a systems level. Um, that's one of, and in a long-term way, and that's one of the things I mentioned. If you want the best primer on why that is so critical um, and the best primer on systems thinking that I can ever imagine, that book, it's fantastic. It's so much fun. Big, thick book, but so much fun to read. Uh, the book that sort of put me on the path uh, towards uh, everything I do, uh, the, there was a guy named Rob Schultes, and he was a he was an outside magazine outdoor writer, but he was the first guy who wrote a book called Bone Games, Zen, Shamanism, and the Search for Transcendence, and he was the first person I read who wrote about flow, and he wrote about that. This was back in the late 70s, early 80s, I think. Um, and he wrote about some of the neurochemical work that was going on just starting when we thought it was endorphins and just endorphins that was producing flow. Um, but it's a fantastic book and it really sort of started me on my path. And then just from a writer's standpoint, like, man, if you have not read Joan Didion, if you have not read The White Album or Slouching Toward Bethlehem, which are two books about, they're two books of essays, man, I, you know, I owe Joan Didion more of my writing style. Joan Diddy and Thomas Pynchon and William Gibson are who I owe my writing style to probably as much as anybody else. But so I don't know. Those are some of the guys, some of the people I love and read. So moving on to our last question then, and that is if you could distill the lessons and experiences you've had in your life down into a short but impactful message that you would share with every single person on this planet, if you could, what would your message to the world be? Yeah, I don't. I never know how to answer this question. <laughs> I don't have a big, good, sexy answer here, and so it always it always varies. But the thing that's been in my head a lot lately, and I and I I like to tell this to people. And since this is a podcast that concerns itself with performance, I'll do it here. Um, high performance is about compound interest. It really is. The studies of flow peak performance show that the, that you only get like four or 5% better in a flow state. Like you, everything jacks up, but you can only kind of push your skills into that sweet, sweet spot. It's, it's, it's slowly over time. So I always say that the thing about peak performance is under the hood, all it looks like is a checklist. I said this earlier, right? It's, it's you wake up, you do 10 things on your checklist. You do them excellently as, as best as you can with as much energy and zest and passion as possible. You probably have some kind of exercise regimen, some kind of active recovery protocol on the back end of that. And then there's a little bit of social time there because we need, you know, we need contact with others. Um, it's useful for peak performance. And then you go to bed and repeat over and over and over weeks and months and years. And if you do that, you know, years at a time, that's when it's, that's when the compound interest starts to show up. That's when things get really magnificent. And I don't think it, that takes a great deal of patience with yourself and it takes a great deal of commitment, right? You have to, you have to basically, I always say that the, the most foundational thing is peak performance is you can never break your word. And I don't mean to other people, I mean to yourself. And what I really mean is if you put an item on your to-do list, you, you're not done until it's crossed off because that's what peak performance looks like. You get everything on your to-do list. You get after it in the gym or you know wherever. You get into a sauna or stretch or do whatever you need to do. You refuel the machine. You do it again. 
It's not, that's what it looks like. It's not super sexy. Stephen, this conversation has been an absolute pleasure. And the only shame here is that, that this conversation has to come to a close. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Where can our listeners connect with you, Stephen? You know, by the way, I, I take that back. I do have one message for your listeners. Please, please. Yeah, I buy Last Tango in cyberspace. <laughs> like dozens, hundreds. Of, nothing says I love you. Happy Fourth of July. Happy August. Like Last Tango in cyberspace. Okay, what were you saying? <laughs> we will absolutely link to it, and and our Freedom Pack family. I'm sure oh, they you will can find play. me. StephenCotler.com is the best place. S-T-E-V-E-N-K-O-T-L-E-R.com. And uh, you want to have a lot of fun. If you go the words tab, it's sort of hidden under the words tab, but there's a video page. And there's got to be 10 hours of free, fun content. And go check out the rabbit holes. So there's rabbit holes for pretty much every topic I talked about today. If you want to know about future technology, drop down that rabbit hole. Literally, there's a section on the website that says the rabbit hole. So if you want to know, you know, uh, frequently asked questions about flow, there's a rabbit hole for that. Take your pick. So there's a lot of fun to be had on that website for free. Stephen, thank you so much for coming on the show. It has been an absolute pleasure. Gentlemen, thank you for having me. Thank you for what you do. It's good to ask questions, and I appreciate it.